0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal.
1: 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3,
0: 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts.
1: Astronauts report
0: it feels good. Hello once again and Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us on the latest episode of the Space Nuts podcast. Episode 235 is what it says on there. Notice the professional, the professional rundown sheet? No, it's all backwards. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'll have trouble reading that. Uh, my name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always is the good professor, Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hello, Andrew. Happy New Year. Uh, I wanted you to see my uh, astronomy face mask that uh, my daughter sent me for my birthday in yes. the end of last year. <laughs> it's got all the constellations on. Sadly, they're all in the wrong place, but they are the right constellations. They're the real thing. <laughs> so <laughs> this, is my, yeah, this is my new uh, fashion accessory, uh, which I don't need in here because I'm on my own. The nearest person is 20 metres away in a different room, so I'm going to take it off. But I thought you'd like to see it. Yes. <laughs> That's a beauty. I love it. It's good, I love isn't it? it? Yeah, it's great.
0: Um, I like that too. Yeah. Very clever. I, actually, I've seen a lot that people have uh, been creating. Uh, you've got to give um, humans uh, credit for their ingenuity. That Some of the yes. face masks that have, have started popping up around the world just are so imaginative. <laughs> I'm not so sure about the zombie ones because I think no. they'll scare children. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah but I some of haven't. them where
0: you look like you're a skull and... <laughs>
1: I've got, a, I've got another good one to show you in a later episode, so that's one I haven't worn yet, but I've seen it, so that'll be good. <laughs> yes. Uh,
0: and uh, by the way, how was, uh, how was Christmas and New Year? What did you get up to?
1: I wrote two chapters of the new book uh, and I'm still forging ahead to try and get, it, get the text out of the way as soon as I can, so I can start on the cartoons for it because that's the next big thing.
0: Yeah. Oh, oh, just don't go away. This is oh. so impromptu. Hang on, hang on.
1: <laughs> He's gone. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that was the late Andrew Dunkley, who's just revealed his chest full of, uh, sorry, his, his bookcase full of oh, trophies. Here we go. Done. <laughs> hang on. It's done. Is it? Oh, the, the book's done. Yes. The Hitler, Hitler Paradox.
0: What yeah. a title. <laughs> so that's, that's ready for my proofreader.
1: So um, mm, should, yeah. we're all good to go. Good to go, yeah. yeah. It's you actually need an like,
0: ed- it's a hard copy.
1: Yes, hard copy. I need an
0: editor, I need, need, I need editor, a, a uh, yeah. proofreader, <laughs> proofreader, an editor and a, mi- and a miracle. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well,
0: miracles happen. Anyway, um, anyway, that will be out sometime this year. Probably the same Great. day as Fred's.
1: Yeah, <laughs> oh, no, that's not till October when mine comes out. I can so, wait. Yeah, i oh, good. go rush. <laughs> you're, you're, your fans can't, though, no, Andrew. Uh,
0: both of them yes that (laughs) That includes me now we better get down to business so new year was good christmas was good ours was good Uh, very very quiet so um, we we didn't get up to much not that we could because there, there were so many restrictions that we had to deal with because of the sydney outbreak but um yeah hopefully things will get better this year but That's a wish against a wish, I think. So in this episode of the Space Nuts podcast, we will be talking about Earth spinning faster than it used to. That's because people are running a lot faster than they used to and the planet's sort of like treadmill effect. Um, uh, It is, it's true. Chinese astronomers, we've got a lot of speed going on. Not the wrong kind of speed. We've got speed, a lot of speed going on in this uh, week's episode. Chinese astronomers find nearly 600 high-velocity stars. That's because most of them are 17 years old. (laughs) Uh, Now, and and a couple of questions coming up. One from Tom in the uh, Midlands of the UK uh, around Benford's Law, which is a fascinating question. And Daryl in South Australia has a, what would happen if question for us. I love those ones. So we will deal with all of that today on the Space Nuts podcast. Now, Fred, uh, to our very first uh, topic for 2021, Earth is spinning faster than it used to. Someone suggested the treadmill effect. I suspect
1: otherwise. <laughs> Actually, um, you know, the treadmill effect is as good as guess as any, because at the moment, nobody knows why. <laughs> so yeah oh well that was a, a short segment yeah it's a theory that uh look it's a theory that is it uh, uh, should go into the mix for what the reason is for this uh faster spinning earth that we're seeing uh, and it it sort of flies in the face of the normal um wisdom about the uh, spin we've known ever since the invention of atomic clocks and probably a little bit before that actually uh, but we 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 know that the the Earth's rotation is not constant. Uh, it's a very poor timekeeper. Yeah. It's sort of, uh, it, it, and it's because its spin is affected by things like the sloshing around of the liquid iron core in the middle, uh, or the solid iron core in the middle and the liquid iron core above it, um, and the <clears throat> excuse me, the convection's in the mantle. But it's also affected by other things like melting ice sheets and ocean currents and things of that sort. All of those things affect the rotation of the Earth. But, uh, as you and I have spoken about before, Andrew, the, the normal way it changes is by slowing down, uh, and that's because of the tidal friction effect between the Earth and the Moon. The Earth is gradually uh, uh, p- putting energy into the Moon, which makes it recede away from us, and that energy has to come from somewhere, and by and large it comes from the slowdown of the Earth's rotation. But it's not just a, you know, a constant drift downwards it's got bumps in it and we had a bump effectively last year. Uh, 2020 apparently had more uh, short days uh, than we've had for quite a while which means that the the spin is going up. Sorry Andrew go ahead. No I I
0: knew that last year felt quicker. (laughs) <laughs> Everyone said, "How we fast? Did. How fast
1: did 2020 go?" It, did. it went like a that. Rocket. Was it. That's why. Yes. <laughs> well, the shortest d- uh, day. Was uh, and but by day now we don't mean daylight or anything like that. It's the the standard yeah. day is eighty six thousand four hundred seconds. That's how many seconds you've got in a day, uh, which is twenty four times three thousand six hundred, the, the number of, uh, of of seconds in an hour. So um, the shortest day was actually July the nineteenth last year, the depths of our winter down here in Australia, but uh, a high summer up in the northern hemisphere, and the uh, the. Yeah. So that eighty six thousand four hundred seconds uh, was short by one point four six zero two milliseconds. So it's it's not really it's not really something you'd notice, but uh, it is a short day. Blink, blink and you wouldn't be seen blink and you would miss it uh, you definitely yes. miss it yes blinks are usually longer than a millisecond so you would um but yes there's no so i should say that nobody's worried about this particularly um it's just a reflection of the fact that the earth is uh you know is variable in its spin and exactly as i was saying um things like the uh the the the, the movement of uh, of material within the Earth, but also I think to some extent we're seeing the sensitivity, the sensitivity of the Earth to what actually happens on the surface, and that's um, because on the surface there's effectively what's called a bigger moment of inertia. So that things that happen on the surface actually have a bigger effect, uh, and that's why. Um, just the level of snowfall, for example, uh, over a continent like Greenland or over an island like Greenland, and even things like the erosion of mountains by glaciers and that sort of thing. All of these can change the speed of the planet's spin. Um, the the other side of it, and maybe this is a little bit more concerning, is that um, uh, atmospheric and climate scientists are looking at this as um, perhaps are seeing something like the effect of global warming where you've got uh, snow caps melting uh, and the snows high mm. up in the you know in the mountains actually disappearing um, so it's uh, it's really you know it's a, an interesting yardstick um, and it may mark. The beginning of changes in the way the earth rotates now um, the people who are really most uh, upset about it are the computer scientists and they always are because um that's why computer scientists hate the fact that the Earth's spin is gradually slowing down because in order to compensate for that we introduce leap seconds periodically uh, I think there's something well, that's like 30 right. been introduced since 1975. Was it the first uh, time a leap second was put in? Uh, and they, th- uh, but their their computers uh, need to be adjusted if you put a leap second in, uh, and that's a big pain in the neck because it's on you know systems on board spacecraft. It's all over the place uh, where things have got to be changed. Um, and the the idea of the, the Earth speeding up a bit could mean that you put in a negative leap second. That's to say you take out a second at the end of a six-month oh. period. It's, it's either the 30th of June or the 30th of December that these yeah. are put in. So you could take one out, um, and that, again, could lead computer scientists to tear their hair out and, uh, and have all kinds of problems. So they're the ones who are most directly affected by this. But I thought it was a really interesting piece of research to point out that actually occasionally the Earth's spin speeds up.
0: Yes, it is. It's fascinating. Uh, I believe the first leap second was added in 1972. You weren't far off. (laughs) And uh, yeah, when the Earth slowed down a a, a little bit and and, yeah, there's been, I think, 27 leap seconds all up (laughs) thereabouts. Mm. I did have a question. You you mentioned at the beginning that the tidal effect of the moon is supposedly slowing the rotation of the Earth, but we also know the moon is creeping away from the Earth and will over time go. Um, Will that change... The spin of the Earth as it as it moves away, or is that too slow? No, actually,
1: that the two are intimately linked, Andrew. Um, and the Moon will never disappear; it will settle down about uh, five, uh, half a million kilometres away. This is in something like 50, 50 billion okay. years. It's nothing to worry about. Um, but it, it's actually so it's the the gravitational interaction between the two that causes both of those phenomena: mm. the the slowdown of the Earth, um, which is because it's giving energy to the Moon. It's it's a fairly complicated process, but it's all about the way the tidal bulge on the Earth actually acts gravitationally on the Moon itself to give it an acceleration, and that acceleration moves it further out uh, in its orbit. So yes, two intimately linked processes, both of which are very interesting, I think. Excuse me.
0: Yes, they are. The other interesting mentioned the bulge I, I actually looked it up once and I think we have talked about it one once or twice uh, the, the bulge is responsible for quite a significant difference between the width and the height of the uh, height of the planet it's uh it's 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 quite a large variation oh, that,
1: that's it? that's the equatorial bulge yes the bulge caused by this equatorial yeah. bulge sorry yeah, yeah there's the too bulges many bulges here actually something that's something that staggered <laughs> me Andrew uh so the, yes, the Earth has an equatorial bulge; it's fatter around the middle, as are pretty well all the planets. Saturn is the most. Saturn is 10% wider yeah. across its equator than it is at the poles. But wait for this. Um, in the you know all the research that I've been doing for the for the mm-hmm. kids book, uh, one of the amazing facts is how perfectly spherical the Sun is. So the Sun is 1.3 thereabouts million kilometres in diameter. And yet it's uh, the difference between its equatorial diameter and its polar diameter is less than 10 kilometres. It's a staggering. So it's absolutely a perfect sphere, which is really quite remarkable.
0: It is. Uh, So here's another question without notice. I'm getting (laughs) good at that. Uh, If the Earth was spinning a bit faster in 2020 does that mean the bulge the equatorial bulge got a bit bigger
1: yeah it's it, it probably but you know the amount that's yes about, it would be much? about a millimeter or something like that probably <laughs> exactly well that, that's too much that's about 10 millimeters yeah, yeah that's too much that's an overestimate so it's yeah. A, yeah,
0: oh, yeah it's just a guess okay um i think we got that covered uh, great topic to start off the year, too, I might have. Yeah, Fascinating. Yeah,
1: I thought so, You're too. listening
0: to and occasionally watching the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Roger, your last here also. Space Nuts. Thanks again for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. And thanks to everybody who send uh, questions in to us because uh, we like to uh, get questions from the audience. We feel it uh, gives you a bit more to... um To enjoy. Uh, It's not just us rabbiting on about what we like to talk about. Uh, We get to talk about the stuff that you want to know about as well. Uh, And we've got uh, episode 240 coming up very, very soon. And uh, as we tend to do on the rounded numbers, we (laughs) offer the opportunity to go all in. So if you've got a question buzzing around in that massive brain of yours that you would like uh, Fred to tackle, uh, please, please, please send it in to us. Just go to the Space Nuts podcast website uh, space nuts podcast.com is what it is coincidentally and you can uh, upload your question uh, through our email interface if you don't want to uh, use your voice or you can click on the ama tab and record your voice as long as you've got a device with a microphone it should work and just tell us who you are where you're from ask your question Bam, and away we go. Uh, so we'd like to uh, do an all-question episode for episode 240, which will be coming up in about five weeks' time. Now, Fred, uh, we, we, we have got uh, the need for speed in episode 235 of the Space Nuts podcast, and we go from a faster-spinning Earth to high-velocity stars, which have uh, been observed by the Chinese, and they've they've found quite a few
1: of them. Yeah, that's right. This is um, actually a story quite close to my heart, Andrew, for a number of reasons, Um, partly because I've been involved with uh, work uh, in in measuring high-velocity stars myself. In the the RAVE project, the radial velocity experiment, which we did with the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope during the first decade or so of the new millennium, um, we surveyed Mm -hmm. uh, the speeds of half a million stars. And one of the first pieces of research that came out of that was the detection of high-velocity stars, nothing like as many as the Chinese astronomers have now discovered. But what that does, uh, it's not just that these are stars that are leaving the galaxy and you're waving them goodbye. It actually gives you a way of measuring the mass of the galaxy. Uh, And we got um, a mass for the galaxy from those results of... If I remember rightly, it was 1.4 trillion times the mass of the Sun. That's uh, a result that actually still holds up, I think. Anyway, uh, things are moving on because uh, with a telescope, which, again, uh, I've had quite a bit to do with, it's called LAMOST. It is a telescope that uh, is built... It's actually only about 100 kilometres from Beijing um, for reasons that uh, I won't go into here, but it's uh, on a site that is rather light polluted, but is very good for observing relatively bright stars. And what they've done with LAMOST and its name is actually an acronym. Uh, It is the Large Sky Area Multi-Object Fibre Spectroscopic Telescope. Uh, And there's the clue, because my career was all about multi-object fibre spectroscopy, uh, which is where you use optical fibres to steer starlight uh, from the telescope into uh, the spectrograph, the device that um, actually turns the light into a spectrum and lets you analyse all its details. So uh, our um, fibre spectrograph, on the Schmidt telescope had 150 fibers when it was in good condition, but the Lamas telescope has 4,000, so it can look at 4,000 stars simultaneously, and that's why they are doing now very big surveys of star speeds and the chemistry of stars as well, which is one of the other things that comes out of this. So, mm. the, uh, the the study that's just been published uh, has uh, now. A total of 591 stars added to the list that we knew already, which was about 550. So it kind of doubles, effectively doubles what we've what we know. Uh, often these stars are ones that have actually had something happen to them. Um, for example, if you have a star that happens to be in the center of our galaxy and wanders close to the black hole near the centre of our galaxy, it might get caught up in that maelstrom of material, but not quite be sucked in, but in fact given a kick outwards uh, to give it these very high velocities. It's that sort of thing. Or even just uh, an encounter of two stars coming together where they they don't collide, but the gravitational interaction actually boosts one of them uh, out of the galaxy. So it's really, uh, you know, it's a, a really interesting piece of work. But today we have uh, something we didn't have in the, in the era of RAVE, the radio velocity experiment. We now have the Gaia spacecraft. Yes. Uh, and what Gaia is doing is measuring very accurate positions of stars. It, you know, they're accurate to something like a millionth, oh, it's about five millionths of, a, of an arc second, a tiny fraction. A second of arc is one 3,600th of a degree, which is a relatively small angle, mm. but then they're splitting that up to millionths of an arc second. And that lets you look at the way stars move across the line of sight. When you can combine that with the radial velocity, which is the velocity along the line of sight, you get the true... Space velocity of the star, it's actual motion through space. And that's how you, can, um, how you can deduce that some of these are very high velocity and are effectively leaving the galaxy. It's great so stuff. How fast are we talking? Uh, I don't have figures, but because I, uh, I haven't uh, actually had time to look at the paper itself, which came out on the 17th of December. But the typical sorts of figures that we were talking about with Rave were of the order of 400, 500 kilometres per second. Uh, and that's enough to, to get you out of the galaxy. It's all about the escape velocity of the galaxy. And that, of course, varies depending on whereabouts in the galaxy you are. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a single number. Um, And I think we used to quote the escape velocity at the sun's radius, and I can't remember what the number is. I could probably look it up, but I won't do it just now. Um, I think it's less than 400 kilometres per second. But you get the drift. These are velocities in the region of a few hundred kilometres per second.
0: How fast is our sun moving, our star?
1: Yeah, so we are part of the sort of circulation around the centre of the galaxy, uh, and our speed is round about 250 kilometers per second. Okay, Uh, And so that's the the sun's orbital speed uh, around the center of the galaxy. And in fact, um, because of dark matter, that's the orbital speed of most stars. One of the things that we, one of the reasons why we think dark matter is there is because uh, of this what 's called a flat rotation curve, when you look at galaxies, uh, everything 's moving around at about two hundred and fifty kilometers per second, whereas what you would expect is for the velocities in the middle to be fast and then for them to slow down as you go further out, but they don 't and that 's one of the one of the reasons why we think every galaxy is encased in a cocoon of dark matter it 's the, 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 the you know the the most significant uh, reason why we think dark matter is real
0: someone's going to ask the question if everything's moving at approximately the same speed then how is it all drifting apart but i suppose it doesn't matter what that speed is you're drifting outwards therefore apart
1: well do you mean um are you do you mean yeah, the expansion of the this? The mm. d- yeah, so that is much much smaller, uh, and only uh, comes into play where you've got you know huge distances. We're talking about galaxies which are bound by their own gravity, uh, oh. and that sort of overrides anything to do with the drift of uh, space, which is much much uh, slower. It's you know the values on the scale of a galaxy. The expansion of the universe is zero. It's only when you're looking at galaxies that are separated by you know, millions or billions of light years that you start to see the expansion of the universe.
0: OK. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> Good, um, <glad> it does. <laughs> you, you mentioned a few reasons why stars reach these higher velocities. The one you did mention is that they just got their driver's licence. <laughs>
1: Well, we know those because they've got a P attached to their...
0: Well, in in, uh, the state of New South Wales and I think in a couple of other (laughs) states in Australia, uh, people who just get their licence have to demonstrate. So with a red P for their first year, provisional licence, and then I think for, is it three more years or two more years, they have to have green P plates. So they're well identified. (laughs) It doesn't slow them down (laughs) at all. But, um, yes. I, I think uh,
1: you're making generalisations there, um, uh, Andrew, because I,
0: I'm... not I, blaming I, all of them. I'm not <laughs> blaming all of them. Uh, only 99.9% of them.
1: I know some former platers who were very, very careful indeed <laughs> and never yeah, went I, fast. Yeah. And I'm their dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my boys were
0: pretty good too. Yeah, yeah. Really. Uh, it comes down to the teachers, doesn't it? No, no, let's forget get it. let's <laughs> no, it. <not> <laughs> all right time for a break here on the space nuts podcast episode 235 you're with andrew dunkley and fred watson okay we checked all four systems and in with a go space nuts this is the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson and a special shout out to all our patrons of course who uh, put a bit of money into the the podcast we certainly appreciate your support and if you'd like to become a patron you can look up the details on our website spacenutspodcast.com you can give a little you can give a lot you it, it's totally up to you it is not mandatory uh, I must point out, and uh, a shout out to our social media supporters. Those that follow us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, where else? Pa- uh, Patreon, yes, that's. I suppose you call that social media. Uh, there's also um, Pinterest, uh, and and a few other places. Uh, what's that other one called? Instagram. Instagram. I should know all this. I've got all these, but um, I just. Get so lost in them. There are so many. but um, And YouTube, of course. You can you call YouTube a, a social media platform, I suppose. But uh, we, we're getting quite a following on YouTube. So thank you to the YouTube followers for supporting this, the Space Nuts podcast. And we get a lot of feedback from YouTube as well. So thank you very much. Uh, now, Fred, we've got a couple of questions to tackle. You, and uh, this first one's... Uh, Yes, uh, this first one's pretty wordy. This comes from Tom, who lives in the Midlands of the UK. Uh, Hi, Fred and Andrew. I have a question for regarding a mathematical phenomenon called Benford's Law. It uh, came. I came across this a while ago whilst casually researching various things online. For those unaware of Benford's law, it's an analytical tool commonly used to detect financial fraud. I find this fascinating, Fred. Basically, the law states that when taking the first digit of numbers in large data sets... The probability of each number, one to nine, occurring repeatedly decreases the higher you go. For example, the number one will occur 30% uh, uh, 30 of the time, two around 15% and so on, uh, nine occurring just 5% of the time. Uh, Auditors then use this tool to analyse data sets and find anomalies in the information. If a company's data features a 9 as the first digit, say 16% of the time, providing the company's services don't offer products um, whose prices exclusively begin with a 9, that's important, it's a likely indicator of fraud. So, uh, now to the actual question part. In Benford's law, uh, is Benford's law commonly used in astronomy to analyse things like distances between stars, galaxies, exoplanets, or for other large sets of data relevant to astronomy? I've read several articles that have explained how they've uh, explored this law in nature for things such as depths of earthquakes, sizes of animals and infectious diseases, but there doesn't seem to be a, a huge amount on astronomy in space. If this law applies not only to financial information, um, but uh, much to the natural world and the universe, that's uh, that would be somewhat intriguing. Love the podcast, discovered it four months ago. I tend to listen to it whilst uh, playing a space exploration game, which really enhances the experience. I'm fully caught up and now I've begun re-listening to some episodes, you poor thing. Uh, if you could start recording twice a week minimum, that would be great. <laughs> Hope you're both well. All the best, Tom from the UK Midlands. Benford's law. I like the sound of this. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, it was actually, um, and in fact, um, Benford was only was the second person to discover this law because it was also discovered uh, 50 years earlier in 1881 by uh, an astronomer by the name of Simon Newcomb, an uh, American astronomer. So it's sometimes known as the newcomb benford Law. So astronomers have certainly looked at these numerical distributions. But um, um, Tom's right, actually, that it's not a tool that is widely used in astronomy, although I take his point that, um, you know, other natural things have been used to... to, to, to sh- or to, ha- have been shown to fit this law, like mathematical or physical constants... Um, it's uh it's it's a r- really very interesting thing i think financial fraud is probably its biggest use uh, but uh, the point mm. i was going to make is that in astronomy um, there are statistical tools which are quite different from this and very much more uh suited to the problems that we face in astronomy which are looking things like looking for trends in the metal content of stars in their atmospheres or their surface gravities, how they're distributed with distance in the galaxy. Um, And for that, the kind of statistics that we use are are perhaps in some ways more conventional, although uh, the flavour of the month is still something called Bayesian statistics, which is um, a set of statistical tools that um, involve you effectively taking a guess at what the answer might be so you, you fix something called a prior and the prior is your starting point when you are going through the statistical number crunching uh, to uh, you know to, to, to work out what uh, what the answer is likely to be so Bayesian statistics uh, play a much bigger role than benford's law. It is interesting though uh, how applicable it is over many different physical parameters one of the things that that i thought was an interesting um, uh, uh, you know co- consequence of ben- benford's law is lengths of rivers uh, and you know that's such an interesting thing that the length of rivers actually fits this natural law um, I just one other comment. I'm going to have to nip off for a second because my computer's got a red light on it that tells me I forgot to plug in the mains power. Uh, so I'm going to let you chat for a second uh, while I go and get it. But um, the, you know, the, the the really interesting thing I think about Benford law when you look into it is it works best when you've got. Um, statistical data covering many orders of magnitude that means you know tens hundreds thousands uh, hundreds of thousands millions Um, if you've got data that covers that broad base then the law works really well if you're only within one order of magnitude um, one to ten then it doesn't work so well, uh, which is an interesting aspect of what I think is an interesting law. I'm going to go before my computer dies, Andrew. I'll leave you to talk for no less than, oh, no, no longer than about thirty seconds. Hang on. Oh,
0: okay. I think I can manage that. I, I used to work in radio i'd still turn up for radio i don't know if i work in it anymore Uh, it reminds me of a trip judy and i did a uh, a couple of months ago now we uh, we decided it was only an overnight trip we decided not to take our phone charges and of course my phone burned its battery heavily and so the next day driving home uh, we had a cable in the car and i thought okay well i'll just plug it in and charge the phone on the way home and everything will be apples when i got home the phone was almost dead and i thought what the heck over the course of time, the plug in the um, uh, adapter on in, in the car dashboard had worked its way out a couple of millimeters, and no longer had contact. Couldn't charge my phone. You get caught out in the stupidest ways, but uh, luckily I got home with a fully functional phone. Although the latest update, the latest update that I've put on my phone now causes my battery to burn. Uh, daily, which and it's a brand new phone, so I'm a little bit annoyed. And apparently, the fix isn't going to be uploaded until next month. So, yeah, I think a lot of these mobile phone companies have got a bit to answer for, Fred. I really do. But that's
1: another story. Well, thank you. It's Welcome back. Nice by the way, you. yes, thank you. Sorry uh, about that. <coughs> I just, I didn't want it to die. Oh, <laughs> okay. uh, fair enough.
0: Now, let's move on to our next question. And this is uh, this is a what would happen if question. This comes from Daryl in South Australia. I must point out too that um, this question and the one from Tom, that, that they're patrons, but uh, just for a change, we're including a, a couple of these patron questions in the mainstream podcast. Normally they'd go into bonus material for the patrons, but uh, these questions were so very good, we, we thought everyone would enjoy them. Um, now, Daryl uh, Darryl, uh says, the other day I was watching a YouTube channel uh, and the title of the segment was, what would happen if the Earth got kicked out of the solar system? It was mentioned that some 70,000 years ago, a brown dwarf, red dwarf binary system passed through the Oort cloud and messed things up. It was also stated that uh, Gliese 710, I've probably mispronounced that, uh, will pass through in about a million years' time. Uh, so he's asked several questions. Have either of you heard about this? <laughs> uh, how, do scientists, um, how do scientists now uh, know this happened? Uh, can this still be seen through telescopes today? How would it take... Uh, how long would it take for asteroids uh, from the event? And how can scientists track something that might uh, take a million years to be in our neighbourhood? Good questions. Uh, and... Uh, over to you, Fred. <laughs>
1: I, 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 I have I love the way... <clears throat> uh, you haven't heard of it. <clears throat> That's all right. Uh, I was just going to say I love the way that um, Daryl has numbered his questions 1B, 3D and 5. <laughs> I managed to avoid that. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite nice. So, um, yes, uh, I've certainly heard of Gliese 710, uh, which is a star that will pass through... Uh, in in a a million years' time. I don't know about the black, brown dwarf, red dwarf binary system. Uh, It's possible that might have happened. Um, uh, So let's just step back and work out, you know, what's going on here. Uh, The solar system is not just the planets and the asteroids and comets. uh, It it is uh, also the Oort cloud, uh, a a, a cloud envisaged by Jan a Dutch astronomer back in about 1950 or thereabouts, Um, he postulated that the source of comets is this uh, spherical cloud uh, of comet nuclei, which are bodies a few kilometres long, very icy. But if you've got lots of them out there, um, a passing star uh, could disturb the Oort cloud, propel them into the inner solar system where they will um, essentially fall in towards the sun and be visible as comets uh, because they, they once they get near the sun they start evaporating their uh, you know the yeah. ice is basically turned to to, to vapor to a plasma yeah. in fact uh, and then you can see them but of course if that happens on a wholesale scale if you've got something that churns through the Oort cloud and disturbs it and sends a whole lot of comets into the inner solar system there's a good chance that some of them are going to hit the earth mm. and so people who look at asteroid impacts and things of that sort. And the history of the Earth in terms of uh, mass extinctions and cratering and things of that sort, they are the people who uh, I think would be saying, well, something happened here. We had uh, a whole lot of impacts, um, mass extinctions. Uh, Maybe that was because something passed through the Oak Cloud. And you can actually... You can actually... uh, You know, this is going to one of Darren's questions here... Uh, B, I think, actually. Not two, it's B. Uh, how do scientists know this happened? You can look at stars uh, now, especially that we've got the Gaia data set that we were talking about a few minutes ago, these exquisite positions of stars, which also give us the chance to work out their motion, how they're moving. If you combine that with radial velocities taken from a spectrograph, then you've got this uh, the complete motion of a star... And if it's, you know, we can look at stars out there in the universe and say, well, or in the galaxy and say, well, this one would have been in our vicinity, um, you know, a um, few hundred thousand years ago or something of that sort. So that's how that kind of deduction is made. Um, and so that Red Dwarf binary system, as I said, I haven't heard of that one. But it, 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 if it's um, if, if it really exists, then it probably is something that has been observed through telescopes Um the uh, Gliese 710 is much better uh, defined because that's one that's kind of on its way. Uh, it hasn't passed through the the solar system yet. Uh, it's uh, it's a red dwarf star. Uh, Gliese stars are essentially red dwarf red dwarfs. They come from Gliese, hair doctor professor Gliese's catalogue, oh, yes. uh, and that's his number 710 in the catalogue. Uh, it is expected that uh, there will be an interaction between Gliese 710 and the Oort cloud uh, because it will come in closer, probably than the Oort cloud. It's um, 0.2 light years is its minimum distance. The Oort cloud is round about that distance from the from the sun. Uh, so this is an event that is expected to occur on our best figures in 1,281,000 years' time. And that, again, comes from the Gaia data. So it is, uh, it's a close approach, and that is likely to disturb the Oort cloud. And so uh, the other, one of the other questions that Daryl has asked, question D, how long would it take to see asteroids from this event? There would actually be comets rather than asteroids because uh, the Oort cloud is the reservoir of comets. Uh, they would take, yes, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to spiral in from the Oort cloud into the inner solar system, maybe of, on average, fifty to 100,000 years. So it's not an immediate thing, uh, but this star is itself um, kind of not an immediate effect. It drifts through the sky at a relatively leisurely pace. I think I saw a figure of one arc minute per Per year, I think was what I saw. So it might have been. Let me just see if I can pick that up again. Uh, it was it was certainly something that would be easily visible. It's a star that will be relatively bright. In fact, they were suggesting the magnitude of about minus two, which is as bright as Mars gets when it's uh, when it's brightest. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't find that that figure of its uh, of its drift. Um, But uh, the star would be there, and, um, you know, it doesn't whiz through the Oort cloud and bash everything up. It's a very leisurely process, but the effect of, uh, you know, of this 100,000 years or so after the closest approach, um, when the star would still be visible in the sky, uh, that's when you start getting the comets feeding into the inner solar system. Um, And the, the last question how can scientists track something that might take a million years to be in our neighborhood it 's exactly what i've just said it's looking at the information we get from Gaia and the radial velocity surveys that gives us the space velocity of a star and then you just map it forward because there's not that much else happens in the uh, you know in the period in our galaxy you 've got to look at any other stars that it might interact with but um, a million years is you know it's it's not that long in the grand scheme of things so it's Very interesting, interesting, uh, really interesting question. I'm very glad that Daryl raised that one.
0: Yeah, it's a ripper. Yeah, Um, so yeah, could be a ripper for anybody,
1: Uh, any of us who are still left around in 1.28
0: million years. It's a question about the predictability. I suppose a million years out, that makes it a little bit of a lottery,
1: doesn't it? Um, Only in the sense that you might have ignored or missed that there's a faint star somewhere between it and us that will disturb its path. Uh, And that, Mm. you know, it's... it's, um, I mean, the modelling that people are doing about the way stars are moving within our neighbourhood actually go out to 15 million years. Um, And so... Um, this this uh, certainly good modelling that, uh, that um, takes into account what we know about the stars in, in our vicinity and this one's an interesting one the fact that it is sort of whizzing towards us uh, on a timescale of 1.281 million years uh, I don't know whether any of us will still be around by then we might have hot-footed it to other parts of the galaxy or succeeded in wiping ourselves out who knows
0: Hopefully, the former. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> anything?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. So, um, just going back to one of my so comments, Andrew, it is what one out minute a year is its motion through the through our sky when it's at its at its nearest. Right.
0: Um, could something be disturbing the Oort cloud now and us not know about it, or are we pretty well au fait with with what's happening around us in this um, vicinity?
1: It, it's, it is possible. Um, You know, the the Oak Cloud, the problem with the Oak Cloud is it's so far away and the objects in it are so tiny that it's not really well bound to the solar system. So you don't have to give it much of a push to disturb things. Uh, And people have suggested, you know, even giant molecular clouds in the neighborhood of the sun uh, could disturb the Oak Cloud. In fact, I worked with um, some astronomers back in the 1970s and 80s who very much had that picture that. Um, there are episodic disturbances of the oort cloud over periods of uh, hundreds of millions of years. every so often you come near one of these regularly come near one of these giant molecular clouds. The oort cloud gets disturbed and you get uh, an episode of bombardment on the on the earth's surface. Um, Victor Klube and Bill Napier my two colleagues in Edinburgh were very big on this on this view um but we we do have uh you know we do have evidence that um, s- certainly there have been periods where the bombardment by the Earth has been much higher than other periods, and not just right at the beginning. In the early history of the solar system, 3.8 or 3.9 billion years ago, there was something called the Late Heavy Bombardment, which, in which was a time when everything was charging around. But there have been these other periods since then where it's looked as though there have been more high, higher rates of cratering. Uh, on inner solar system bodies, which suggests that there's been more impacts, and that suggests that maybe something has upset the Oort cloud a bit.
0: And I suppose it's also possible something disturbed it. What oh, I don't know, fifty to a hundred thousand years ago, when humanity wasn't a thing, and we might see the effects
1: real soon. Uh, that, yes, that's true. Actually, a hundred thousand years ago, humanity was a thing, but um, we not were that. different. Yeah, not not quite as well in tune with the uh, the, the the star, the Sun's neighbourhood as we were then. They just knew things were flying down at them. Uh, I mean, the um, point mentioned in the YouTube channel that Daryl watched, and I confess I haven't had time to watch this video, although he's given us a link to it. Uh, we'll try and do that. Uh, but that talks about uh, events 70,000 years ago um, that would have messed things up.
0: So we, we could still see the effect of that.
1: We could, yes, that's right. Yeah, we could. Yeah, watch All out for it. Watch, watch this space.
0: Yes, thanks for the great news, Daryl. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, yeah. No, thank you for your question. It was a good one. I, I, I do enjoy the what would happen if?" So if you want to um, fire us one or two of those for episode 240, uh, we could have a bit of fun there um, because I'm sure people have got something in mind about what Uh, we'll uh, we'll look forward to those Uh, and don't forget again if you do have a question you can upload it uh via our uh, um, website com. ama link for voice um if you want to record your voice uh, or you can just do it through the email interface and send us the text whatever way suits you Uh, that brings us to the end of another program and their first one for 2021 thank you for it as always It's, uh, it's great fun and a great pleasure
1: yeah we'll we'll find other interesting stuff to talk about next time and i look forward to it andrew all the best and see you soon
0: okay professor fred watson astronomer at large part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast and a special hi to Hugh back in the studio and from me, Andrew Dunkley and all of us, thanks for your company. We'll see you on the very next episode. Bye-bye.
1: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available
0: at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bites.com. This has
1: been another quality podcast production from sites.com
0: Radio Ta-da.